Hi, I'm Wendy Francis, nutrition therapist, emotional eating expert, and entrepreneur. I've helped countless people overcome their obsession with food and weight. Isn't it time you overcame what you had become and ignite who you were meant to be? Your time to become an overcomer starts now. Welcome to Overcoming Your Emotional Eating, the podcast. In today's episode, I talk about healthy fixes for food addiction and what to do instead of turning to food. Take a listen and keep on overcoming. The topic for tonight is healthy fixes and how and why they work. And what I'm referring to when I speak to healthy fixes are things that work besides food to release the dopamine that we've talked about in previous podcasts uh, or calls, I should say, on the addiction cycle in knowing that the addiction cycle is based off dopamine and the reward system. Um, But because it's such an intricate topic, I'm going to kind of dive back in a little bit to what we spoke about last week. And then we're going to move forward into healthy fixes, how and why they work. And I'm going to set up a framework and some structure for those of you out there that are really wanting to change this cycle for yourself or maybe for someone you know. But the dopamine cycle that I spoke about uh, in the last two sessions uh, or, or calls, I should say, um, is, has been known for at least 30 to 40 years, it may go back before then, Um, but since we've known about addiction patterns and addiction cycles, we've known about dopamine. The big difference now is that we have now understood more about how this dopamine receptor site and dopamine cycle that I spoke about, how it is related to food because previously we've known you know we've known for many 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 years and and again i have to look it up as to how many tens of years 30 40 50 has to do with you know we've known that it has to do with cocaine and various drugs we've further linked it to alcohol and then it began to open up to other facets of addiction whether that be gambling sex addiction etc and then scientists started to say, well, if it, you know, if, you know, if, if you increase dopamine and the reward system with drugs and you do that with alcohol and you can do that with sex and with gambling, well, then for those people that are drawn to food, then why would it not happen with food? And that's how researchers started to actually dive into and, and meld the addiction. And it kind of it was interesting for me in my profession. Because what happened is uh, the people that were in addiction and the people that were working in eating disorders really didn't work hand in hand. It was very interesting. We kind of sat on opposite sides of the fence. And um, and that's kind of how I began my profession. I had a lot of colleagues that were addiction specialists. And I am an eating disorder specialist. And that's that's my primary primary purpose on this planet was to to work in eating disorders for, for over 23 years. I still do some of that work privately um, and consult with some companies that do that. So um, in any case, when I started the profession, we sat on opposite sides of the fence and we said, oh, well, that's an alcohol thing or, oh, well, that's a drug thing. 
And I'd say, you know, well, this is a food thing. And we very much sat opposite. And what's been so interesting over the 23 years that I've been in the profession is how much we've learned that there is no addiction in a bubble, meaning that our brain and our body can react very similarly to various facets of a reward infrastructure. Even if the reward infrastructure is on exercise, right? People forever have always said to me, well, like how could someone compulsively exercise? I hate to exercise. And I don't get how, you know, so-and-so, she gets up at 4 a.m. and she goes out for that run. And man, oh, I just hate running. And God, she just does it every day. And I think she does it too much, you know, they say to me. And, and the truth of it is they get the same reward dopamine pop that someone else might get from eating a piece of cake. They get that same piece from going out for a run versus somebody else who might get that from you know, taking drugs or alcohol. Now, there's a physical component. Here's, there's a physiological component, I should say, to the food piece, and there's a physiological component to the alcohol and the drug piece. And I want you to hear that's a little bit different with the exercise component because if they stop exercising, physiologically speaking, they're not going to detox like a person with alcohol or drugs is. Or a person with food when they're detoxing, how it can feel, how hard it can feel, how much you can still crave that sugar and really want it, right? The person who is exercising doesn't have that physiological component, but still the same psychological dopamine influence, right? So just wanted you to hear that from that perspective and, and how, it, how much we weave this dopamine reward system that I'm talking about, how much we weave it through all facets of addiction. So it's really, really interesting when you learn about the dopamine addiction cycle and what that does in the brain, how intriguing it is and how much it has no boundaries anymore. 20, you know, 20 plus years ago when we all sat in our little boxes and thought, oh, this is just about food or oh, this is just about alcohol. We also know that the dopamine reward structure is set up, as I mentioned last week, you know, there are certain other setups for this dopamine reward infrastructure to occur for us. So previous trauma that hasn't been healed can be a setup because we know that serotonin and dopamine levels are lower, especially if someone undergoes early onset trauma. I'm a trauma specialist and I've studied extensively in it because I find it so intriguing and what we know is the earlier the trauma, the more significant the trauma, the more the brain chemistry is altered. Now, that can be fixed, and I'll explain how in a few minutes. But because the serotonin and dopamine levels are lower for people that have early trauma and significant trauma in their lives, that we know that they're more prone to need that dopamine pop because their brain chemistry levels of dopamine are lower. We also know that there's some other things that can set you up for that previous trauma, a genetic disposition, and also looking at our food system now, which I wanted to talk about this, even though it's not kind of quote unquote the topic for tonight. I'm pretty good at getting off topic, but I really feel like this is relevant and I want to bring it to tonight's call because 
one of the things that people will ask me, especially my elders, um, people that might be in their 80s or 90s that, you know, maybe in my life, and they have a real different view on how food was before, and they have an interesting view on how it is now and how many different things we have in it compared to what they had. And if we take a step back and we look at how food became bad, quote unquote, there are ways that we have changed our food system over the last 40 years that are really, really interesting to note. And so you know from a biological a neuroscience perspective, we know that they have affected our body's physiology. So if you look back, for example, let's see, it was in the, in the 70s when we developed, actually, I'll go back before then. In the 60s, um, and some of you will remember, in the 60s, there was, um, and I think Tab, I'm almost, Tab was the first diet soda, came out in the 60s. And I don't know the exact date, so don't hold me to that. But it was the first invention of a non-nutritive sweetener. And it hit like gangbusters. I mean, people were very interested as to how there was no calories in this product and how there was no sugar. And it really started this monumental snowball of non-nutritive sweeteners, from Splenda to Aspartame to NutraSweet. And we know, I was just actually finishing... Um, writing a book. We're, we're actually writing a book. Uh, Dr. Francis and I are in the process of finishing a book at present time and did a lot of research on non-nutritive sweeteners for that book because I've always been interested in them and have read so much on barriers from bariatricians and MDs that I've worked with and how much they've seen uh, that the more non-nutritive sweeteners a person consumes, the more sugar they crave. So TAB, the diet soda, was actually created to help our country lose weight. And what we know is that non-nutritive sweeteners have done the converse. There's a lot of other things that non-nutritive sweeteners are related to that I'm going to stay off of that topic. For now, it's fairly controversial. There's a lot of politics involved and a lot of money involved. I'm going to stick to, though, the facts around what we know about it, increasing cravings and increasing obesity. And both of those have factually been found by researchers time and time again. And I read the first report on that 18 years ago. So we know that these non-nutritive sweeteners physiologically create sugar cravings. We also know that they, they can create a facet of addiction for people, especially the non-nutritive sweeteners combined with the bubbly. There is a combination there that is really physiologically addictive because there's a small reward structure to drinking that drink, right? So, you know, many, many years ago, we didn't really get how food physiologically could be addictive. I knew what my clients felt. I didn't understand the physiology behind it. And the physiology is now caught up with what my clients have said for years and years and years. It's not just a feeling. There can be a physiological addiction to non-nutritive sweeteners. 
We also know that there can be a physiological addiction to high fructose corn syrup. In the 70s, due to a development of new fructose enrichment technology, corn started to be processed into high fructose corn syrup, which is a cheap, highly concentrated, more easily transported source of sweetness than cane sugar. So it preserves the food, it stays on the shelf longer, and, um, you know, and it still provides a sweetness. We also know 100% that high fructose corn syrup is addictive. 100%, bar none. So there's a physiological component to our food that wasn't there 40 or 50 years ago. We don't know other preservatives, additives, and dyes. We know dyes and their effect on children, but we don't know about physiological effect and addiction yet, although I guarantee you that's probably coming down the line. Whether or not it is or not, I can't, I can't assume but they're doing a lot of research that, uh, around that, especially on red and blue dyes and how much they change children's biochemistry. It's pretty interesting. So in any case, we take a step back and we look at how our food became more addictive. We also know that there's some genetics involved. We know that there's some trauma involved. And then we know that there's this dopamine reward system that I spoke about last week. And knowing that, what we have to know is that all is not lost, right? Because I always look for the solution in everything. And I know and I've seen clients who should not have recovered from their food addiction recover. And so I know there's always a way out. So what I want to talk about for a few minutes is the dopamine reward system and how your body can actually rebuild itself, because it can. The reason why I tell you all these things about food and about other things is because I want you to know. It's important to be in the know about your food, right? So we know the dopamine in our brain is dispersed in many different areas of our brain, and I don't necessarily want to go into all the brain kind of physiology and neuroscience because it get really intricate. Now, if I had you in my office with me right now, I would definitely draw a big structure and you could see what I was talking about, but we don't have that online. But I do want you to understand, you know, when we, when we focus on a certain part of the brain, it's called the ventral tegmental area or the VTA. That's where almost 90% of our dopamine neurons get stimulated when we're about to eat. So this is the part of the brain, if any of you guys out there have ever seen that um, medication commercial, my kids laughed at this commercial because they didn't get it, but I did. Um, there's a medication commercial out there that was being shown for a while. It's actually off the air again because they found problems with that drug, but where the, the women would be kind of hunched over each other and then they'd sit up and be like, ooh, ice cream. What that's talking about is the VTA system which is where 90% of your dopamine gets released and stimulated. Now, there's other parts of the brain that it's transmitted to. Now, what happens in addiction when that dopamine gets transferred to the other neuron? If it sits in the gap between those two places, that's where we get the reward pleasure. Okay, so if the dopamine goes from one neuron to the next, hop, 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 like a leapfrog, you get a good feeling, but it doesn't, it's not that real bang pleasure. Now, when it sits in that 
synapse is where we get that feeling, just so you can understand that piece. So the longer it stays in that, in that synapse, which is kind of like your valley between the, two, between the two neurons, the more intense the high is or the reward is from whatever you're doing. Now, here's the thing, though. We know that you can get that dopamine release and staying in the neurons from other quote-unquote fixes besides food. There's other ways that you can do that, right? Any of these things that provide a reward for you will release dopamine. And I talked at the end of last call, at last week's call, I talked about a number of healthy fixes. What's important to note is what's your healthy fix because, quite frankly, that's what makes a difference. What we do too much in our society is we read something or we hear something from someone and we think, oh, that works for them. I'm going to do it. And the truth is what you have to do is find the reward for you that creates that really great feeling because you can't have my good feeling, but you can create your own. And so you just figure out what makes you feel that way. So as I mentioned last week, there's a number of things that you can do to create a healthy fix, right? You can checklist your tasks. You can checklist a large, uh, you know, task for the day or tasks on a calendar. You can find a creative passion. You can eat some pyrostine, right? If any of you were on the call with me last week, you can listen to some music or meditate and to do a cleanse. So all of that can really help with your dopamine levels. Now, if there's other things that you know you want to impart to begin to give you a reward feeling that never has before, you can do that. And I'm going to tell you how. Let me give you a little bit of structure. So let's just say, for example, somebody's not an exerciser. And, uh, you know, this is, this is pretty commonplace. I probably had a handfuls of clients over the years that have come to my office and said, I hate to exercise. I don't want to do it. I hate, I hate, I hate it. So what I've learned to do is to figure out, first of all, exercise for me and exercise for you are different. Find which way your body wants to move. Because running may not be your thing, and running may not pop your dopamine. Running for me does. Hiking for me does. But you've got to find what gives you that reward or the closest thing. Because I've had so many people have exercise resistance, which is a whole other topic, that sometimes people that I talk to don't even know how their body likes to move anymore because it's been so barraged with negativity around it. So what I have people do is think about, okay, how did you like to move when you were little? So did you like to skip? Did you like to hop? Did you like to act like a pony? <laughs> I did. So um, I used to skip around my house like that. Did you, you know, did you like to play tennis? Did you play softball? Or did you play, you know, so where was that for you? Okay, and then what you can do is get what used to be a reward for you, even if it's not now, and you can start to break it right. down to begin to make it a healthy fix. So first and foremost, you would identify the behavior 
that you want to be your healthy fix, that you want to convert, right, to begin to give you this dopamine pop. All right? Then you're going to write it in columns. So first column would be my healthy fix. You're going to start with just one every one to two weeks. And so, for an example, you know, it could be my healthy fix. So it might be I'm going to try to play tennis twice a week. You've got to find the dynamics behind that, right? But so number two then, to figure out what healthy fix you want to go for, what you want to be able to make that dopamine pop for you, and then you're going to write down the things that you do right now that hinders you from doing that healthy fix. Now, if it's something like a physical piece, you know, sometimes you can't, you, you can't get over that, so you've got to start again. But you want to write down the things you do to, to hinder that healthy fix from happening. So it could be, you know, I get to bed too late and I can't get up at 7 a.m. To, to, to get to the tennis courts. It could be that, you know, then I wake up tired and I'm rushed, then I fail to plan, you know, to get out the door with my ball and racket, and then I don't get, you know, anywhere on time for the rest of the day, so I just have to pack it in and get to work. So to write down what you do to hinder it right now. And then three, write down your fears. Because what happens so often, we get so afraid of trying something new, but we always keep the fear and the worry in our brain. And what we know, and I've seen this for years, is when fear cycles through your brain, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. When you write down the fear and you look at it in black and white, you start to see it objectively. So it's extremely important that you write down your fears and worries about starting this. And then fourth, write down what you could commit to. We're trying to begin to implement this healthy fit. So the reason why you code it out in this way is because the brain starts to go A to B to C to D in a behavior chain. And it links, starts to link this up. Okay, so here's what I have to do. Here's what I don't do now to try and get this done. Here's my fear, but here's what I can do about it. Here's what I can commit to. Here's what I can do. Because so often I hear from people, I can't exercise or I can't eat healthy or maybe I can't eat when I work with my clients with anorexia. I just can't eat, uh, you know, or, or I can't eat healthfully or, or, I, or I, I don't have the time. And I always want to look for what you can do. So in that fourth column, that commitment and obligation is about what can I commit to? What can I do? Instead of focusing on the can, what can you do? And so if you put these healthy fixes into this infrastructure in black and white, it starts to give you a way to move through that. So everyone who's Thank on the call tonight or listening to this back on a replay, write down some healthy fixes that you want to begin to have. Again, you can draw from my list of things we know. We know from research, checklisting tasks, creating uh, something and finding creative passions, eating tyrosine, listening to music, meditating, and doing a cleanse, we know all of those increase dopamine, 100%. That's part of why you see them in our plan. However, 
for other things you want to start to be able to do, you want to get a reward from. Because let's face it, losing weight can be difficult in the, in the moments where you're losing weight. Now, once you get to your goal, it feels great, right? But there's those incremental times. So how can you start to feel rewarded at those incremental times? And what behaviors do you want to impart to allow you to feel that great reward? Right? Is it, is, it, is it running? Is it eating broccoli? Right? Which sounds awful funny. <laughs> but for some people who might hate vegetables, let's try different ways that you can prepare those vegetables. Let's see if we can get your vegetables to a place where you can actually find a little bit of reward from eating those, that dopamine pop of like, ooh, this is yummy. Right? So you can do this structure with anything that you want to be a healthy fix, anything that you want to release your dopamine levels. So I'm going to turn the call over. You guys have been so gracious. I've hardly gotten any feedback. I'm going to turn the call over to you guys and see if anybody has any questions about this particular subject right now. We'll open it up to all questions in just a minute. But does anybody have any questions or comments or um, you know, have any experience with, with any of this? Is there any, so I'm new to the program, and I guess my question would be, is there any guidance on how long it takes to transition to finding that, that new dopamine, dopamine pop? But, I mean, I'm sure it's somewhat custom for everyone, but you used to hear that, oh, if you do something for 10 days, it becomes a habit sort of thing. Is there any cycle to the addiction process for food? That's a great question. So what we know is the more that you do the other pieces from research, what we know is it can take anywhere from three to nine months. And, and I'm saying that as a roundabout. Now, can it get better? The cleanse helps people tremendously with those cravings. We do, it, you know, the tyrosine component actually in the metabolic drops. But we have tyrosine in there, but you can also get it from your food. So in any case, the more that you do to cleanse your body, to give it these other things, the quicker it's going to totally begin to shift around from a physiological perspective. Now, the emotional perspective and the trauma perspective, that's another story, right? Because that's, you know, that depends on what's happened and how long someone needs to dive in and work on it. But just from a physiological perspective, I've seen people within the first three to four weeks of the program, even sooner for some, especially after the cleanse, really, really decrease their cravings for sugar radically. And so I then know the body is starting to reduce its reward system from that. Now, here's where people falter, and this is why I do my calls because then I want you to start to go out there and find other healthy fixes, right? Because if you don't, I mean, we can't walk around without getting a reward as a human being. It's just not going to work. We, we like rewards. They feel good. <laughs> they make us happy, right? So it can start to, so, so to answer your question, because I'm going off on a tangent, <laughs> which I do sometimes, but to answer your question, fully and completely to switch around a, a kind of a dopamine receptor site addiction cycle fully anywhere from three to nine months. 
from the physiological perspective. Although, as I mentioned, I see patients that can start to shift that around within the first two weeks of the program in a reduction of cravings the majority of the time. But they may still have them here or there, but they get their menstrual cycle, it comes back. But, you know, if you hang in there, that starts to happen more and more where you're craving less and less, and then it's starting to implement some of the healthy fixes, as I spoke about before. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you all so much of you that are on live or that are listening back to the replay. Thanks for taking this time out for you, for learning something different, growing, achieving, and uncovering your best you. Have a beautiful evening and enjoy the weather. Thank Take you. Take care. Thank you. Right, You're welcome. You. Good night. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend. Rate, review, and subscribe. You never know who you'll help become the next overcomer.